Word in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be here. We are grateful for the privileges to together look to your word. And Father, as we've sang about the great sacrifice of Christ, as we've sang about what he has accomplished for us, as we look at this text, Father, I, I pray that Christ and his work is lifted high and exalted. And I pray, Father, that we would give you all the praise and glory that you alone deserve as we think of the depths of which Christ has saved us from, as we think of the depths of our own sinfulness, all that we deserve from you, the holy and righteous God. And yet Christ has purchased everlasting life to be with you in glory forever. And so, Father, I pray that as we look to this text and we are confronted with our own sinfulness, that our response would be to lift you high, to glorify you, to live for you, to love you all the more as we see how great and glorious you alone are. We thank you. Amen. Well, if you would take your Bibles at this time and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 18. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. So as you turn there, let me ask this question. How are we able to identify somebody as a false teacher? What is the way that we go about that in seeing whether someone is truly speaking what God has revealed and proclaimed or whether some is, someone is speaking their own message, leading others astray? Would not the most obvious way to do that be to take what they say and test it against the Scriptures. Go back to the Bible and say, is that what the Bible says? As we examine the Scriptures. Now, as we start off here, why do I ask that question? Well, because I'm going to quote Joel Osteen. And Joel Osteen is a false teacher. And I I know that shocks you to hear me say that. No, it doesn't. But I want us to think about something he did say. Joel Osteen said that 99.9% of people are not bad people. They may make poor choices, but deep down, they've got a good heart. So again, what does God's word say on this? Does that line up with the truth of God's Word? Does that line up with everything that we've been going through, starting with chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans, through everything leading up to where we are now? Does that match? Now, it's something people want to hear, right? That's, that's why he says it, because it's, it's attractive. It tickles ears. Uh, people want to believe that they are basically good, They want to believe that people in general are basically good. And to say otherwise, to say they're not good, well, people are going to look at us like there's something wrong with us. I remember hearing an interview that Ray Comfort did on a secular radio program. Uh, If I remember correctly, it was a psychology-based radio program. And the interviewer, was appalled to hear that Mr. Comfort did not think that people were good. And she was all the more taken back as she learned that he didn't think he himself was good. 
And really, she wanted to label him with some sort of uh, disorder or something that she, uh, she just couldn't believe this. And so she was appalled by him. She was very abrasive towards him. But all we have to do is look at the world around us. Just go out your front door. Actually, before you even get out the door. Right? I mean, let's ask the question, why do we lock our doors when we leave our houses? Why do we keep a close eye on our kids when they're at the public park? Why do we hold our kids' hands as we walk through Walmart? What about the history of this world and all the bloodshed and wars? What about the evil you see within yourself? Your own heart motives and the deceit and hatred that you find there. And you can surely justify the things that are in you that you know are wrong, but that really just goes to prove the point. All of this screams that we are not good, but wicked. And that's been Paul's point. Again, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way up to what we read and see here this morning. So as we we come to our text here this morning, we come to a a new subsection, which actually goes from chapter 3, verse 9 through verse 20. Although, again, we're only going to look at verses 9 through 18. And then next Sunday, the game plan is to tackle verses 18 or 19 and 20. But what we start looking at here this morning is the conclusion to the larger section, which is the first part of Paul's argument defending his thesis statement in this letter. And so Paul's thesis is, again, that the gospel, the gospel, so not uh, someone's external moralism, uh, not for the Jew, they're being called a Jew, they're um, having the law of God and not their circumcision, not those things, not anyone's religiosity, But again, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. All right, so that's the very thing Paul is defending in this letter, uh, what he is showing to be true. And so as he shows this, he begins by showing that it's true in the sense that everyone needs righteousness, that there's no one in of themselves who is righteous. And so he starts off talking about the Gentiles and their need for righteousness because they are wretched sinners. And he demonstrates that, as we saw in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he shows how the Jews, despite all that they had received from God and the advantages that they truly did have, yet still they did not keep God's law. And so therefore, they too are without righteousness and have no hope when it comes to the judgment of God. The truth of the matter is, all stand before God as guilty, for none have upheld his standard of righteousness. We are all lawbreakers. As Paul has shown the sinfulness of the Gentiles and the Jews as they stand before the holy God. And so in all of this, as Paul has built this argument, he now brings it all together in the section that we're looking at here this morning. He comes and and says that all are sinful. All are guilty before God and under condemnation. And so since that's where we are, let's let's read this passage. If you would read along with me as I I read it out loud. Again, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So after, again, showing the Gentiles will stand in judgment without righteousness, and then also to the Jews will stand in judgment, he begins to wind down this section by posing a question and showing that he's drawing a conclusion from everything that he has said so far. And so we see he asks, what then? And then points to the conclusion as he asks, are we Jews any better off? Uh, The word Jew here is inserted by the translators to interpret what Paul was saying. Uh, The Greek literally reads, are we better off? Or he could translate it as saying, do we have an advantage? And so some argue that Paul is the one asking this question and including himself among the Jews, as he is Jewish. While others argue that this question is coming from the Jewish imaginary opponent that we've seen Paul bring up questions through, that challenge his teaching so that he can answer those questions and those rebuttals. Uh, But in any case, this question is related to the Jews. And so, again, are the Jews any better off? And we have to ask, well, in what sense? Because there is a sense in which Paul says, yes, they are better off. Yes, they, they do have an advantage, right? We saw that. And he gave an example of that advantage, saying that the Jews have been entrusted with the Word of God. So they have the Old Testament, all the promises that the Old Testament contains. And so, yes, there is a sense in which they have an advantage. But in what sense is Paul asking this here? Well, clearly, as we read through this, it's in the sense of standing before God in judgment. So in that sense, do they have any advantage over the Gentiles? And what's the answer Paul gives? No, not at all. Not at all. And why? He says, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And as he says here, we have charged. Uh, The word charged is a legal word, like charges that are brought up against somebody in the court of, in a court of law. Uh, the charges have been brought up on all mankind, as Paul has presented the evidence, and then the verdict is passed that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Hence, we saw back in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said, "...the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men." who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is poured out as God pulls back his hand of grace which restrains sin in the world, allowing for man to more and more fulfill the logical and consequential ends of their depravity. As mankind loves their sin, goes after their sin, and hates and rejects God. And while the Jews, though possessing God's law, possessing his special revelation to them, 
and all the privileges that were there in the Old Testament and being circumcised, yet they did not keep God's law. And so the charges against them stick. Before the judgment bar of God, Jews and Gentiles are on level ground. And so all are under sin. And saying under sin is to say, as Rob Ventura points out, under sin is under the dominion of sin as a controlling, ruling, and reigning spiritual principle. Uh, We will see in chapter 6 that sin is a ruling power, enslaving, and the master of all of those who are in its grasp, which again is all of us. We see here in verses 10 through 18, uh, Paul looks to the Old Testament presenting more evidence to this charge, showing all the more that it is true that all are under sin. And so as we look at this, we see also to the extent, then, of sin. How pervasive sin is in all of us. And what theologians call this is total depravity. And it's the idea that sin touches and affects every aspect of us, every part of us, so that we are unable and cannot obey God's holy standard. We cannot uphold it in of ourselves. We are totally depraved. And so again, Paul shows this by stringing together numerous Old Testament verses. Verses from Ecclesiastes, most from Psalms, and then also too we see reference to Isaiah. And so what we need to do here, whenever we see uh, an Old Testament passage that's referenced in the New Testament... We have to go to that passage in the Old Testament and see what that passage means in its context, what it meant there by the original author. And then once we understand that, then we can come and bring it into the New Testament and specifically here to what Paul says in Romans and understand how Paul is using it here in this context. And so that's what we must do. So again, this is showing that all are under sin and to such an extent that we are totally depraved. And so Paul, he gives his declaration of the truth of sins, uh, how universal sin is for everyone. And then he says there in verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Now, some argue that verses 10 through 12 come from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. The problem with that is the verse 10 doesn't quite line up with that. It doesn't really match. And so it seems more likely that verse 10 comes from Paul quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament and specifically quoting Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. And in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is very pessimistic about a life that is lived under the sun, a life that is lived apart from God. But I would argue what we see there is that Solomon is very optimistic about a life that is lived in the fear of the Lord, a life that is lived for his glory. And in this specific section that this verse is found in, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is pointing out that you cannot offer to God, or maybe it's better said, you cannot manipulate God with offering to him your good works, your righteous acts, and hope that because of those things, God will give you the good life. That God will give you a life that is free of pain and suffering. 
Solomon shows you cannot do that. And so in showing that, he says there in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, as we read it here in the English Standard Version, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So you can't offer God your righteous works in hopes that he'll give you a good life because those righteous works have earned nothing for you because you are still a sinner. No one has earned anything from God except his displeasure and wrath. And therefore the wisest among us, the best of us, is still nothing but a wretched sinner. That's what we see here in Ecclesiastes. And so then to Paul's point, as he quotes again this verse from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there are none who are righteous, not even one. All have sinned and are in need of the righteousness that is from God as revealed in the gospel. And then as we look to verses 11 and 12, we see they are a quotation from Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, which has almost an identical psalm in Psalm 53. And in this psalm, Psalm 14, we see David takes a very wide view of the wickedness of humanity and God's judgment of the wicked. And in verses 2 and 3 of this psalm, we see that God surveys mankind and their corruption. And as Paul quotes this psalm, he arranges it in such a way that he's putting emphasis on a certain thing. You know, when you read a book and the author you're reading quotes somebody else, and then in that quote he has a word or maybe a whole part of the quote in italics, and then at the end of the quote says, emphasis added. Well, Paul could have very well at the end of this quote said, emphasis added, uh, because he adds his own emphasis to it as he orders it, putting first, no one understands No one seeks God. Paul wants to especially bring that out. And so no one understands, no one seeks God, because instead we've all turned aside. We've all gone our own way, as we see here. As Paul has said earlier in Romans, God has revealed himself in creation, yet man has suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And then Paul says in chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, for although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And again, apart from God's grace, this is all of us. Uh, This is all of our plight. This is all of our condition to be futile in our thinking and reject the true God, to hang on to our sin, and therefore then direct our worship every which way except to the one true God. That's the condition we are in, naturally. We're all futile in our thinking. There's not one who understands. Sin affects our thinking and our reasoning. It's as Steve Lawson so blatantly put it, Bluntly put it, sorry. Sin makes you stupid. And he's right. And in this effect of sin on us, we've all gone our own way. All have turned away from God. 
And the word here for turning away is the idea of going in the wrong direction, going away from where you're supposed to be going. And it can also carry the idea of being on the wrong path. We've all turned from God under the power of sin. You know, sometimes uh, people give uh, the picture that, that really humanity is trying to get to God. And there are many ways to God as, as humanity wants to be with God and wants to get there. But, but the truth that the scripture points us to is that all humanity is running away from God. They don't really want him. They do not seek God. They've all turned away. But someone may say, yeah, but I've, I've loved God my whole life. I've always loved God. But we have to ask the question, who is the God that you've loved? You may call him Jesus. You may say he's the God of the Bible. But it's the God that you've always loved, the God who is described in the pages of Scripture. Is he the God that has revealed himself there in the Bible? Or else is he the God that you've made based on your own opinions and your own feelings of what you think God would be like? If the God you've always loved is not the God described in the scriptures, then the God you've always loved is an idol. The God you've always loved is a God of your own making and therefore is a false God. None of us have truly loved God. Matter of fact, Paul has said earlier that we are all at enmity with God. We're enemies with him. We've not truly loved him. Instead, we've all become worthless. Or the word there could also be translated as useless. Uh, this word that the English Standard Version translates as worthless from the Greek, uh, the Hebrew word that it stands in for, that's there in Psalm 14, refers to sour milk. What is sour milk useful for? You can't drink it. can't cook with it. It's not even good for cheese. It's useless. And this is our condition. We are useless for good works. We're useless for righteousness. Again, we've discussed a few times that there is no good that we can actually do within ourselves. Our good deeds, apart from God's work in us, are nothing better than, as the prophet Isaiah puts it, polluted rags. Actually, there in Isaiah 64, when he's talking about Israel presenting their good works before God, he literally says that their good works are soiled menstrual cloths. That's really the best that humanity has to offer to God. And so yet we think that we can offer our good works and our good deeds to God and think that we'd be righteous before him, that he would accept that? When such works are so tainted with our sin that they are disgusting before God? And listen, we said at the beginning of this series that there would be some hills that we would have to climb. That there'd be some difficult passages to work through. And really, this is one of them. As we see that every person, including you and me, are in of ourselves totally depraved. We are incapable of doing anything to please God, to do anything that is good. And as we think about that, as we keep going through Romans, we're going to see Paul comes to the idea of God's sovereignty and salvation, of God's election. 
And that's something that we often wrestle with and struggle with. But as we get there, we're going to have to ask ourselves, what is it that we can really do that's good, that is pleasing to God? Again, we may wrestle with what Paul says about God's choosing. We may say, no, it's my choosing, not God's. But what choice would we really make as we look at this passage here in Romans 3? Again, by nature, we're on the wrong path. We're going away from God. No one's seeking God. Paul says it. No one at all. But someone may say, yeah, but what about my free will? Again, Paul said all are under sin. And later in chapter 6, we'll see the natural man is a slave to sin. We've already seen Paul say our, our natural thinking, our reasoning has become futile. No one understands. So with all of our free will, we'll never choose God and always choose our sin. Really, our free will is enslaved to our sin. And until we're willing to submit ourselves to the clear teaching of God's word, we're going to struggle with the idea of God's sovereignty and salvation and his election. We really have to understand what Scripture says when it comes to our free will and our slavery to sin. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, Free will has carried many souls to hell, but never a soul to heaven. And the 18th century preacher George Whitfield said, Man is nothing. He hath a free will to go to hell, but none to go to heaven, till God worketh in him to will and to do his good pleasure. My friends, the scripture is clear. It takes the sovereign work of God in us, that he would draw us to himself, that we would only choose him because of the work that he has done in us. It's his sovereign election. And again, I know these things are tough to take, but the Bible clearly teaches that in of ourselves, we cannot please God. We are under the power of sin. There is no good which includes our free will to choose God. There is no good that we can do. The scripture's clear. And even as we keep going, and Paul finishes off the quote saying, no one does good, not even one. Not one. And again, either this is God's word or it's not. And if it is God's word, which it is, then we must believe and submit ourselves to what it says. Trusting God for the things that we don't understand and trusting him for the things that we struggle with. See, the truth is this. If you can read the scriptures and never wrestle with anything you read, if nothing ever challenges your thinking or causes you discomfort, then either you've reached perfection and have no more room to grow, or you're not really reading and studying your Bible very deeply. 
the Bible in causing us to grow and mature presses against our thinking and our feelings. It presses against our long-held beliefs that we would get ourselves in line with what the scriptures say instead of trying to make the scriptures in line with what we want it to say and how we feel and, again, what we've always believed. The scriptures are the word of God. Inerrant, infallible in all that it teaches. If there is conflict between what we believe and what we hold to and how we think with scripture, it's not the scriptures that need to change. It's what we believe and think that needs to change. And every time we come to a passage that causes us discomfort, that causes us to wrestle with something, we should see that as an opportunity to grow. Because that's exactly what it is. This is God's word growing us and maturing us in our walk with him. So again, as we have this passage here, that is a difficult one. Seeing that all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, myself and all of you, in of ourselves are under sin, having no righteousness, unable to do any good in our depravity. And as we've seen here in these verses, as we are people who have our reasoning affected by sin. And then as we come to verses 13 and 14, Paul then emphasizes that not only is our reasoning affected by sin, but so too then is our speech, the things that we say. And so the first quote we see there, Paul says, their throat is an open grave. This comes from the fifth psalm, verse 9. And in this psalm, we see the confidence that David has in maintaining a high view of God. And starting there in verse 9, David shows his enemies cannot be trusted. As they're spewing out and up from their throats comes a stench of death, unclean and vile. And this points to a corruption that's within. Right? And we know that about the things we say, right? Whatever we say comes because of what's inside us. Because as Jesus said, it comes from the heart, right? In Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 to 35, Jesus said, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And then the, the full verse of what's quoted here from Psalm, Psalm 5 verse 9, says this, For they do not speak the truth, their stomachs, or you can in, translate that as inner parts, are like the place of destruction. Again, it's this inward corruption. Therefore, their throats like an open grave, their tongues like a steep slope leading into it. Or as Paul quotes the end of that verse, again from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, saying, they use their tongues to deceive. People often deceive in one way or another, either by trying to pose themselves in one way that they're not really, or by using flattery, feigning kindness, praising someone all to manipulate them to their own ends. People deceive in many ways. Now, which one of us hasn't experienced someone trying to and maybe even succeeding at manipulating us? Have any of us been guilty of being a manipulator? 
Or again, people present themselves very often as better than they really are. And people sometimes make their problems seem worse than they are in order to get attention or pity. Again, we deceive in many ways. And we've all have been guilty of it in one way or another. We've all been deceptive. And we've been guilty also of destructive speech. Having words full of venom, like is what we see next. As Paul references an asp, which is probably a type of cobra that spits or sprays venom at its, at its prey. And so we see words can be poisonous, dangerous. As Paul says here, the venom of asps is under their lips. And that comes straight from Psalm 140, verse 3. And in this psalm, David looks to God for rescue from evil men. And we see the deadliness that's in their mouth as they spew out harmful words. And can words be harmful? I mean, haven't we been taught from childhood that words, they don't harm, right? Right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Now, we know that's malarkey. It's not true. Words do hurt. They bring great harm. People use their words to tear others down, to shatter people's spirits. We weaponize our words. We've been angry with our words and bringing harm and have spewed out bitterness towards others. We have had venom under our lips. And what more? Verse 14 here, Paul quotes from Psalm 10, verse 7, saying their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. The word for curses here carries the idea of public criticism or slander. It's the idea of tearing someone down by tarnishing their character. Whether it's through hidden truths that you bring out in the public, or whether it's through blatant lies. You see, lying and bitter rage are, are all part of the sin nature and do not honor God. And so the Apostle Paul told the Colossians, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 7 to 10, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. But you know what? It's so easy to let harmful words come flying out of our mouths, especially when we have allowed bitterness to take root in our hearts. That's really easy to do. It's really easy when we have anger towards somebody, when we're hostile towards somebody, to let bitterness creep in and take residence. And when we do that, we are in danger of letting that bitterness eat us alive. I get the temptation. I get it so much that I wish I could say I've never given in to this temptation. And, or at least be able to say I haven't given in to it that much. But I can't really say that. But I get the temptation to want to just sweep something under the rug to avoid whatever further conflict or difficulty there comes in seeking reconciliation and confronting the issue that's before us. Whatever it is that causes our anger and breaks up relationships. 
But if we are angry at someone over something, we need to go to them lovingly and confront it and talk about it. Yeah, sure, there are times where we need to consider, can, can love cover this? You know, am I maybe just being too sensitive, or, or is this really that big of a deal? Whatever it might be, and, and we need wisdom and maturity for that. But when something is just gnawing at us, and the bitterness is growing, we need to do something about that. We need to go to that person and do our part for reconciliation. We can't let that bitterness just fester and grow. That is not healthy for anyone and will only make matters worse. So we need to deal with our anger. And we see Paul discuss this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 to 27. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Now, reading that, maybe we should stop and say, well, actually, anger, my anger, has been sinful. Uh, maybe you've had sinful anger because your anger has come from your own pride and self-centeredness. And so, therefore, then you're the one that needs to repent and seek forgiveness, and do your part in that manner for reconciliation. But maybe your anger comes because you are angry at some injustice, or in God's glory being defamed. Then you have righteous anger. But even then, again, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Even with righteous anger, we can still sin because of what we do with that anger, or not do with that anger. Again, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. If we just try to sweep it under the rug instead of dealing with it in a timely matter, we're going to give the devil a foothold. We're going to let bitterness be the open door to our own ruin. And how will it come out towards that person we're bitter towards? It's going to come out with venomous words. Words that tear down and destroy. And again, that's only going to make things worse. And again, when whatever comes out of our mouth, all this wickedness, all this evil, all this destruction that comes out of our mouth really gives a, a preview of the heart. It comes from what's in the heart. And our words can produce real pain and real wickedness. And understand, I'm not saying that we have all spoken such harm and deadly poison to the same degree as anyone else. But nonetheless, we are all guilty. The universal reality of sin is true. But even saying that, saying that we have not all spoken just as wickedly or as harmful as, as someone else has, is not because of anything about us as if we don't have the same capacity to say evil things as someone else may. That's, that's not true. We do. And so whatever reason that we have not done as, as wickedly as we could have, again, is not because of anything about us. We have to understand that. And we were, we're going to come back to that in a moment, so, so hold on to that. But for right now, what I want us to understand is that we are talking about, again, the depraved man who is the natural man. That apart from grace is all of us. Uh, that's what Paul, the picture that Paul is painting here. But when it comes to the spiritual man, the man who is saved by grace, and so has had their heart circumcised like we discussed earlier, 
that has a changed heart because God has transformed them and by the power of his spirit is changing them from the inside out, that person then should show the difference in their words and how they speak and how they live. And so we see Paul's words to the Ephesian church when he said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, let no corrupt, corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. There should be a difference in you and I who are trusting in Jesus Christ, who have had Christ's righteous work applied to us, and so we're no longer the same. We're no longer who we used to be. Now, as Paul shows man's universal sinfulness, again, affecting his reasoning, and then as we just saw, affecting his speech, Paul then goes on and shows that sin affects everything he does. All of his actions. And we see that in verses 15 through 17. And Paul shows this here by quoting from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 through 8. And there the prophet is showing the sinfulness of Israel. And Paul here takes that and shows that it's true of all mankind, Jews and Gentiles alike. As he says here, their feet are swift to shed blood. People by nature do not run towards what is good, but what is evil? They run towards, specifically what we see here, what is murderous, what's hateful and destructive and violent towards others. And they do so to their own ends. It's all about them. And he just goes on with the quote and says, in their path are ruin and misery. Don't get in their way. Unless you are inflicted with the ruin and misery that comes from them. And so this path, clearly then, is not the path of righteousness. It's not God's path. This is not the path of peace. Matter of fact, we see here the way of peace has never been known to them. They do not have peace with God. They do not have peace with others, as there is no peace even within themselves. They do not know peace. There, there's an unrest in their guilty conscience. And I think we can see examples of this in society around us. As we see society pushes this need for approval, not, not just approval of oneself, but approval of what one does as well. So that you can't even disagree with someone anymore. You can't even just agree to disagree, and you can't be indifferent. Not that the Christian should be indifferent towards sin, uh, or any of these things like that. But, but my point is, we can see examples in society of suppressing the truth, of one striving to numb their conscience by demanding all celebrate and fully embrace their sin, or else be bullied into being labeled as a hater, a bigot, or being canceled, or being marked off of uh, by being a slew of other different things. And why do we see this in society? Because people are not at peace. They're not at peace with themselves. Their conscience burns with the life that they live. And ultimately, one is not at peace within themselves when they are not at peace with God. And peace with God only comes through Jesus Christ. Peace with God only comes on God's terms and no one else's. And peace with God comes 
Because Jesus has paid for our sin as he took our guilt on himself. Having settled our case with God for those who believe. And so if you believe, if you will place your faith in Christ alone to save you, turning from your sin, you will have peace with God. You can trust with full assurance Jesus has made peace for you. Now, maybe as we go through all this, you're thinking, or or maybe someone could think, I've never really been as bad as Paul seems to be portraying humanity here. I mean, I may not have always said the nicest things, but to say that there's venom in my mouth, I I don't know if, if you can accuse me of that. Or maybe they'd say, sure, I've been angry, but but can somebody really accuse me of being swift to shed blood? I I don't know about that. Again, talking about the idea of our depravity and the extent of it uh, does not mean that we've all acted as wickedly as we could have. R.C. Sproul's example was to say, not even Hitler killed his own mother. And so the point is that not even Hitler was as bad as Hitler could have been. And why? Well, remember, we've discussed God's grace that restrains sin. We are not as bad as we could be because of God's different graces, as we see in the fact that he's given us a conscience uh, in in government and the laws that they put out and and even the, the moral bearings in a society and other graces that he's given that restrain sin in sinful humanity and therefore, too, in ourselves. And so no one can say that they aren't as bad as they could be or that they're not as bad as someone else due to some lesser capacity in them for evil. They can't say that. Or they can't say that they're not as bad as as someone else or as they could be because of some measure of goodness that is within them. No, no one can say that. that. That's not the picture we get in Scripture. But if anyone has not done as bad as they could have done, it's because of God's common grace. Not because we have any lesser capacity for sin. We are all totally depraved. It's because of God restraining sin in us. And again, this is not a a popular teaching. But even as we think, well, I haven't done as bad as someone else as I could... I think we should consider the words of Robert Mounts when he said, we participants in this fallen world tend to minimize the difference between our own conduct and the expectation of a holy God. In view of what God intends, humans fall lamentably short. And he's right. We have this tendency to minimize our sin. We say we're not as bad, but but we are not having the proper view of our wickedness. Again, we may say, well, I have not been quick to shed blood. I've never killed anybody. And that can be our defense, but, but Jesus takes that away, doesn't he? Uh, when he tells us that if we've been unjustly angry, if we have come against someone with our words, we're guilty of murder in our hearts. Right? That's in Matthew 5. How many times have we discussed that God is so holy that he's not just going to judge our outward actions, but the condition of our hearts before him? 
Or even when someone, you know, says something off the cuff that was foolish, that was, that was inappropriate, that was sinful, and you say, well, I just, you know, I wasn't thinking, I just, you know, I just said that. And, but again, Jesus said that every careless word out of our mouths will be brought into account. We can minimize our sin all we want. But that doesn't mean we're going to escape the justice of God. And we have to recognize that every sin, even those, those things that we say are little, every sin is rebellion against God. Every breaking of his law is us saying, God, I, I want my way rather than yours. God, I, I care about what I desire rather than what you desire. I want to be my authority, not you. Every little sin says that. And so then, if we say that in our actions towards God, that our actions are us moving to usurp God in our lives, then the truth of the matter is, every sin shows that we do not fear God as we should. Which is the very next place that we see Paul goes to here, in verse 18. As he says, all humanity... There is no fear of God before their eyes. And here Paul quotes from Psalm 36, verse 1, where David contrasts man in their wickedness with God in his faithfulness, justice, and love. And again, as we've, we've said many times before, fear means fear. And the fear that the unbeliever needs to have is the fear that we all need to start with and that is a fear that is a dread of God, knowing he is holy, and his holiness burns with an infinite wrath against all the violators of his holy standard. But see, man doesn't want to think like that. Uh, most want to declare their own goodness like we see in Proverbs 20. Uh, they want to deny that they've earned God's wrath. Or they pretend that hell is going to be a party with their friends that will be there. As I was going over this, I thought of these lyrics by Billy Joel. Um, doesn't it get to you that song lyrics just so easily stick in your head? Even a song that you haven't heard in like 25 years? You know, it could be like you, you heard it yesterday, and yet trying to memorize scripture is so difficult and hard to keep it there. Yeah, it's frustrating. But nonetheless, thinking of, of those who pretend hell is going to be a party, I, I thought of these lyrics. It says, And they say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. True saints made holy in the holiness of Christ are not going to be the ones who are crying, trust me. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They deny God's holiness and so deny his wrath. But in the fear of God... When we come to God through Jesus Christ, through trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, knowing that God's wrath was satisfied for us in Christ, then we fear God, not in the fear of approaching Him, in the fear of wrath, for we know the wrath has been done away with in Christ. But we fear Him so that we approach Him then in love and reverence. Like a son would approach his father, 
A son who does not want to displease his father and fears displeasing his father. We come to God recognizing we can only come to him because Christ has made it so. And so we seek to please him. We fear displeasing him. For we love him as he has first loved us. But again, that's only true of those whom God has worked in through his Holy Spirit. This is only true of the one who has been changed, having a circumcised heart by the grace of God. The one who has come to God through Jesus Christ, having their sin washed away. Because of the blood, because of the sacrifice of Christ. What a great hope we have, because what a great Savior we have. Though we are wretched sinners, he has so loved us that he has given himself for us. And not only has he died, but he rose again to forever intercede for us, whom he saves to the uttermost. How great is our God and King. We have such hope. What hope do we have is as we're going to sing here in a moment about that fountain which we can wash our sins away. And I love that song, There is a Fountain. I love the second verse that talks about the thief on the cross. Uh, the one who reviled Christ with the other thief, but then came to trust in Christ and be saved. And there we'll sing, The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Scripture's clear, I am a vile, wretched sinner. But Christ is such a glorious and mighty Savior. My friends, if you have not trusted in Christ, I plead with you, trust in him today. Believe upon Christ and you will be saved. And for all of us who are saved, with such great hope that we have and such a mighty Savior that he is, let us live in response and showing what a great Savior he is, that we are no longer who we used to be. But he has circumcised our hearts. He has made us new. And we see how glorious and great he is, that he is being lived for him. Let us live for our great God and Savior. Let us live for our King, our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. That though we are sinners, Christ died for us. And dying for us, he rose again, that we would have a new life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Honor and glorify yourself in us. We are so thankful, Lord, for the truth of your gospel. As it reveals even what is bad news towards us, that we are wretched sinners. And yet, Lord, in this truth is revealed what a great and glorious Savior Christ is. And so, Father, let us rejoice in all that he has done for us. Let us rejoice in his sacrifice and his goodness on our behalf, that we would live to give you all the honor and praise that you alone deserve for the great salvation that you have provided. We thank you. Amen.